This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So there is a book series I mentioned in passing last week um, called Percy Jackson. And I'm curious how many people here have ever read a Percy Jackson book? Okay, a few of us. All right, just checking. Um, so if you're not familiar, Percy Jackson is the story of, um, uh, it's a fantasy story in a modern day setting where all the pagan gods of the ancient world are real, right? So the Greek gods are real and the Roman gods are real and the Norse gods, etc. Uh, and they, like the gods of ancient mythology, they um, have a tendency to come down to earth and have relations with human women or men and have children by them. And these children that are um, of half-blood ancestry, part god, part humans, are called demigods, okay? Percy Jackson is a demigod. Percy Jackson's, by the way, spoilers for a book that's like 20 years old, um, Percy Jackson's father is Poseidon, right? And so he has super water powers. Um, but all the demigods have some superpower related to their, um, their god ancestor, whoever that may be, right? Or their goddess ancestor. So, uh, Percy Jackson's a really fun series of books. Um, we could do a whole conversation on uh, the implications of bringing that pantheon into our modern day time. One of the interesting side effects of the story in Percy Jackson is that the gods are not the source of morality, right? As was the case in the ancient world, the gods are amoral at best, immoral often. It's really the people that are trying to find their own morality, their own understanding of tov and ra, good and evil, um, because they don't have a god to give it for them. Uh, any case, um, th this idea of, of demigods is really interesting. didn't begin with Percy Jackson. Of course, it goes all the way back thousands of years before that to people like Theseus and Achilles and Hercules, right? Stories that we all know well. But those stories go back even thousands of years before that um, to some of the original demigods, the first stories of, of human-god hybrids. And one of the maybe the most famous demigod, um, the OG demigod, if you will, is a guy named Gilgamesh, okay? And I'm going to show you just a, a carving of Gilgamesh so you get a sense of, um, of who the ancient world imagined Gilgamesh to be. Um, can you tell what he's holding in that picture? It, it looks like a cat. What'd you say? It's a lion, okay? Yeah, it's a lion. So what does that tell you about Gilgamesh? He's tall. <laughs> He's a big guy, okay? So in the ancient world, um, they often imagined that demigods like Percy Jackson or like Hercules or Achilles um, were these part god, part human hybrids. Uh, Gilgamesh is supposed to be two-thirds god and one-third man. Not sure how that works out, but their sense of genetics wasn't really strong 4,000 years ago. Um, but they're also often understood to be really big okay? Like sometimes giants amongst men, literally and figuratively. Okay, you can take that away. Um, so, I, I tell you all this weird stuff about demigods, um, not because it's, it's fun ancient history, but because it shows up in Genesis 6. 
So if you're like me, your first thought when we hear about Percy Jackson or Hercules or Gilgamesh is, wow, I'm so glad I have a a faith tradition that's not that crazy. And I want to say, well, maybe your faith tradition is a little crazier than you realized. Um, So if you you check out Genesis chapter 6, we hear this story when people are multiplying on the face of the ground and daughters are born to them. The sons of God saw that they were tov, and they took wives from themselves of all that they chose. Then God's not happy, apparently. He says, I'm going to end the world in 120 years. And then we're told the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God went into the daughters of humans who bore children to them. These were heroes that were of old, warriors of renown. Okay, what in the world is going on in this story? So, I think we're supposed to read this story um, as Scripture's um, rebuke of the idea of demigods, okay, of the Gilgameshes and the Hercules. But it doesn't say it's a crazy idea. It just says it's bad. So, sons of God, what the heck are the sons of God? Um, Often people will say, well, maybe the sons of God means the, the line of um, Adam through Seth, and the daughters of men means the line of, of Adam through Cain. Problem is, um, and boy, this would be a fun topic for us to do at some point, um, the, the, the phrase the sons of God, uh, B'ni Elohim, only shows up five times in the Bible. Once here in Genesis 6, four times in the book of Job, and in Job, it's Uh, always in reference to those heavenly beings that are around God's throne when God and Satan are having their arguments. Um, By the way, uh, there's a variant of this phrase, um, B'ni Ha'elim, and that shows up only a few times in the Bible as well. One of those is in our call to worship this morning, Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, B'ni Ha'elim, ascribe to the Lord glory and power. We, We translate that heavenly beings. I think the best reading of Genesis 6 is that um, these sons of God are heavenly beings, right? They are angels, right? That somehow, I know this sounds like Percy Jackson, but somehow they come to earth and they have children with humans. And, and, and pay attention to uh, two really important details here. One, um, they see that they are tov and they take them, right? So it's that same language of Genesis 3. This is not a good thing. Uh, and then second, God immediately says, hey, I'm going to end the world in 120 years. So this is not a positive thing. Uh, and then we're, these children are described as the Nephilim. Um, okay, uh, this is kind of fun. but So Nephilim is, is not a translation. That's just the Hebrew word, right? Um, Nephilim means fallen ones. I don't know why they don't translate it, but it means fallen ones. The Nephilim show up um, a few other places in Scripture, and they're always described as giants. You know who the last of the the descendants of the Nephilim was? It was a guy named Goliath uh, that gets killed by David with a sling and five smooth stones. So, um, remember Gilgamesh, big guy carrying a lion? Um, this, This idea is not so far-fetched, right, that we're, we're hearing that there is this cosmic rebellion going on between the rulers of heaven, the angels, and the rulers of earth, us, and that somehow the children of 
the sons of God and the sons of man are becoming this unholy union of humanity and divinity. Um, oh, by the way, um, we're told that these are the, the heroes of old, warriors of renown. Um, once again, um, I'm going to be snooty, but I don't really like that translation. The word heroes in Hebrew is giborim, and giborim means warriors, right? Mighty warriors. Heroes sounds very positive, right? But warriors is a neutral word. You can be a good warrior or a bad warrior, right? Um, so, we're told that these Nephilim, these sort of demigod giants, are gibberim, right? They are mighty warriors of old. Uh, and I think we get really powerfully this idea that these two exalted categories in the ancient world uh, of demigods and great warriors are bad, right? Or we're not told, hey, these are fictitious. We're just told, hey, these are bad. That somehow the, the folks that our world, uh, at least Moses' world, thinks of as heroic um, are, are actually problematic for God's plan in the world. Uh, I have to apologize to my wife um, because I'm going to use a Star Wars illustration. Um, but there's a scene in Empire Strikes Back where Luke first meets Yoda if you haven't seen Star Wars spoilers for like a 30, 40-year-old movie, um, but Yoda is like this massively powerful Jedi master, but he looks like a little green, I don't know, goblin or elf or something. Um, and, and, and Luke does not expect him to be significant. And I want to just show you this conversation. Like we're being watched. Oh, hey, put your weapon. I mean you no harm. I am wondering, why are you here? I'm looking for someone. Looking? Found someone you have, I would say. <laughs> right. Help do I can? Yes. I don't think so. I'm looking for a great warrior. Oh! <laughs> great warrior? Wars oh! <laughs> not make one great. <laughs> ah, such a good line. So... Uh, I, I love this moment in the story. In this moment in the story, Luke shows up looking for a great warrior, sees this small green person, uh, and says, ah, you're not what I want. And then Yoda says, ah, you want a great warrior. Wars do not make one great. What did the people of Israel expect the Messiah would be like? Do they expect the Messiah would be uh, a, a pacifist who died on a cross for their sins? No. The Messiah was going to be a great warrior. Right? They wanted a gibberim. In fact, they really would like a Nephilim, a giant of a man who could wage war on their enemies, destroy the Romans, free their nation, restore the temple the way it's supposed to be, and, and bring in this age of, of, um, of Israelite freedom and, and maybe rule. Jesus was a surprise and a disappointment to most of the people of His day who were hoping for a particular kind of Messiah. They wanted a gibberim. They forgot that Scripture says that greatness is not related to power or violence, and that a world of demigods and mighty warriors and kings and conflict and violence is a world of Ra a world of evil. And the Lord saw that the 
Ra of humankind was great in the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only Ra continually. See, a world that believes that power and strength is taken is a world that is moving further and further away from the description of, of good and evil, tov and ra, that God had designed for it. And, and I think it's hard for us to wrap our minds around um, exactly what this means, exactly what it means that the Lord saw that the wickedness, the ra of humankind was great on the earth, and that every inclination of our hearts was ra only continually. I think this is because uh, as Gregory Boyd says, evil cannot be adequately conceptualized in the abstract. It can be experienced only in particular forms. When we talk about evil as a general idea, it gets degraded to numbers and statistics, how many people died this week from hunger or from war or from disease. Evil can only be experienced when it's personal. So let me tell you a personal story. Um, Gregory Boyd shares that historian Philip Friedman provided the following eyewitness account of what happened to a young Jewish girl living in the Warsaw Ghetto during the Nazi occupation. Zosia was a little girl, the daughter of, of a physician. During an action, one of the Germans became aware of her beautiful diamond-like eyes. I could make two rings out of them, he said, one for myself and one for my wife. His colleague is holding the girl. Let's see whether they are really so beautiful, and better yet, let's examine them in our hands. Amongst the buddies, exuberant gaiety breaks out. One of the wittiest proposes to take the eyes out. A shrill screaming and the noisy laughter of the soldier pack. The screaming penetrates our brains, pierces our heart. The laughter hurts like the edge of a knife plunged into our body. The screaming and the laughter are growing, mingling and soaring to heaven. Oh God, whom will you hear first? What happens next is that the fainting child is lying on the floor. Instead of eyes, two bloody wounds are staring. The mother, driven mad, is held by the women. This time they left Zosia to her mother. At one of the next actions, little Zosia was taken away. It was, of course, necessary to annihilate the blind child. When we talk about Ra, that's what we mean. Ra isn't a statistic. Ra isn't a number on a spreadsheet. Ra is that. And the way you feel now is the way that God feels in Genesis 6, with two exceptions. Zosia isn't a story to God. He knew her before she was formed in the womb. She was His precious creation. And so were those laughing men. And the Lord was sorry that He had made humankind on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. 
The word for sorry, uh, nacham, it, it doesn't just mean sorry. It means he grieved or he mourned or he rued or he regretted. Um, maybe the best way to, to read nacham is he comforted himself. Um, this, by the way, was what Noah was going to do um, for the people. He was going to nacham. He was going to comfort the people. Um, and I, I almost imagine that God is watching His world, and He's, he's, he's just kind of hugging Himself, right? comforting Himself. How can this be happening? How can there be sozius? How can there be this kind of suffering? And He's grieved in his heart. This is powerful and crazy language for God, right? The God who is all-powerful, who is omnipotent, who knows everything, is comforting himself and grieving in his heart because he's looking at a world that believes that goodness equals power and the means justify the ends and that greatness is found in warriors and war and violence, gibberim and nephilim. I think we still fall into this trap today. We do it in, in different ways, maybe in some that are not quite as obviously horrific. A few weeks ago, a month ago, I can't remember when, um, Aaron Judge, who's a player for the New York Yankees, hit his 62nd home run uh, in a single season. He set an American League record. And um, some people would say that he set the record um, for the Major League Baseball, but there is somebody who actually holds that record. His name is Barry Bonds. Right? Barry Bonds um, once hit 71 home runs in a single year. The reason uh, that some folks want to give credit to Aaron Judge instead of Barry Bonds is that we know Barry Bonds used performance-enhancing drugs to achieve his thing, and Aaron Judge is this incredible man of character, and, and he's a Christian, and he's had a million drug tests, and we know he didn't do that. I, I, I heard about a survey that happened the, the week after Aaron Judge hit his 60-second home run. It was a national survey, 5,000 people in America responded, and they were asked a simple question, if you were forming your baseball team, would you rather have Barry Bonds or Aaron Judge on your team? And more than half of the respondents said they'd rather have Barry Bonds. Isn't that interesting uh, that in our society today, we'd rather win at any cost than win um, and also have to be constrained by our character? Um, we'd rather have the guy that has 71 home runs um, and maybe cheated, but hey, isn't everybody cheating nowadays? And so, let's not worry about the cheating. Let's just, let's just get the guy that gets the most hits. And I think, how many other places in our life do we think this way? Do we say, yeah, it's really about power. It's really about, it's really about being the, let's be the gibberim. I, I know that, you know, uh, in whatever election, there's two people and maybe my guy's not so great and their guy's not so great, but let's just be happy that my guy's not as bad as their guy, right? I don't have to have any real expectations for what the character of my leaders might be. I just, we're just not as bad as the other guy. 
Uh, how often do we do this even with our friends, right? Even our friends at school, we say, ah, yeah, I know that boy, she makes a lot of bad choices. He, he does a, a lot of bad things. He's kind of a jerk to people. She makes fun of people behind their back, but at least they're not making fun of me, and it's kind of cool to be on the in crowd, and, you know, that person probably deserved it, and I just want to be with the, where the people with the power are, right? Uh, I like the gibberim. God looks at our world… Um, a world where goodness equals power, where the means justify the ends, where we, instead of partnering with Him in works of justice and mercy and compassion, partner with His enemy to bring violence on the earth. And God suffers grief. He's sorry. He comforts Himself. And He says, I will obliterate man which I created. I will blot out from the earth. I will strike from the earth Adam that I have made. And you got to understand, God's not talking about ending human life because He's angry. Not once have we heard that God was angry. God's talking about bringing a destruction. We know it's going to be the flood because of His grief. So, you guys know um, our, our dog's name is Riddick, but the first dog that we had as a family, um, his name was Guinness. We didn't name him, but he was black and tan. I got a couple of pictures of Guinness. There's, there's Guinness. Um, go, go one more forward. Ah, that's really cute. Uh, just leave that one there for a second. Um, so, this is Guinness. Uh, we got Guinness from the shelter when we first got married, and we had him for nine years. He was a great dog. He was the antithesis of our current dog in every conceivable way. Um, Sometime in 2013, um, we had uh, an evening where um, Guinness was favoring one of his legs, one of his back legs. Didn't, he was acting like something was bothering him. We, we kept looking to see if maybe there was something in, his, in the paw of his foot. We, we couldn't see anything. Um, we went to bed. Next morning, we woke up, and um, he, he wasn't able to use either one of his back legs, and he was you know, kind of crawling around. And so, we scooped him up and we ran to the veterinary hospital. And by the time we got there, he couldn't move anything but his head. And the doctors, the veterinarians looked at him and said, I, I'm so sorry. You know, you're… Obviously, he's had a stroke of some kind. We don't know if it's ever going to get better. You know, he might be like this for the rest of his life. Um, and it was clear that what we needed to do for him was to not let him continue to suffer. If you've ever had to do this, by the way, if you've ever had to sit by your dog when um, the doctor comes in and gives them the shot, and then it's a really hard thing. Do you think I put Guinness down because I was angry at him? Because I was disappointed in him? No, I wanted his suffering to stop. God looks at His world, a world full of raw, a world full of violence where power is confused with goodness, and He says, if I don't step in and do something, the suffering will continue. There will be more Zosias and more Zosias and more Zosias. Uh, and, and so, God says, I, I'm going to do something dramatic, not because I'm angry, but because I want to spare my family, my children, my creation pain. 
And so he says, I'm going I'm to put my earth to sleep. But Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. Who or what can find favor in the sight of the Lord in a world like this? Maybe someone who let God define Tov and Ra. Maybe someone who saw greatness as different from violence and power. Maybe someone who wanted to partner with God and not with lesser fallen spiritual beings. Maybe someone who sees righteousness as more important than power or winning. Who could find favor in the eyes of God in a world like this? Maybe somebody who recognized uh, that power can be conquered not by more power, but by weakness. That deception is conquered not by bigger lies, but by truth. That darkness can be tamed by a single candle. Maybe somebody who was willing to take up the whole armor of God so they can stand on the evil day and having done everything, stand firm. Maybe somebody committed to truth and righteousness and the gospel of peace and faith and salvation and whose only weapon was the Word of God. Maybe somebody like Stephen the deacon or James son of Zebedee or Dietrich Bonhoeffer or Martin Luther King Jr., somebody who said, I can give my life I don't want to be a gibberim, a mighty warrior. I want to be something different. See, the message of Scripture is that evil will never be conquered by something slightly less evil. That those who find favor in the eyes of the Lord are those who are not Nephilim, who are fallen ones, but who are still standing, standing in opposition to the brokenness and the darkness and the evil in our world, those who are following one who is not part God, part man, but fully God and fully man, those who are seeking not a mighty warrior, but a prince of peace. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's stand and sing.